Hebrews chapter 13. Two more times, I think. Two more times, we're going to say that. Turn to the book of Hebrews. And we will be concluding this incredible epistle given to us by the Spirit of God. Hebrews chapter 13. Let us now hear the word of God together beginning at verse number 7. We will read through verse number 17, 16. Let us now hear the word of the Lord. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go, out, go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect, neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let us pray together. Well, Father, over these last two years, you have used your word through this author to convict us of our sins, to draw us close to your promises, to help us see Christ, to warn us of unbelief, to exhort us to persevering faith. And now, Father, as we conclude this epistle over these next couple of weeks, would you be so pleased to confirm these things in our hearts, seal them to our lives, that as a result of this effort, we will be men and women who live to the praise of your glory in every realm and every sphere of our lives. God, magnify your Son as we turn our hearts to your word this morning. As we give this day, we do so with cheerful hearts, out of joy, sacrificially do we give for the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. So use our gifts this day, not only locally, but regionally and globally to make the name of Christ great among the nations. As we talked about during life together, let the, let the nations be glad, O oh God. And may even this moment, this moment as we give, may we serve to that end. The name of Christ to the nations. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with your Bibles open, pens in hand, notebooks, paper, iPad, whatever you use, to turn your hearts, your attention now fully to the word of God, seeking the spirit of God to do a good work in us as we interact this morning with the word. Always get a little emotional, if you will, when we come to the end of a journey together. We have marked a number of journeys here at Randolph Street. Our first one was, this is going back to 2000 and Seven, late 2007, we began a journey through 1 Corinthians. And I can't even begin to tell you how many trails we've walked together through books like John and Romans, some Old Testament literature, and now this incredible book of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, this 
series of exhortations this writer has penned for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We began this August the 12th, 2018. We've stayed fairly consistent with a few breaks, if you will, through this letter. This week as I was studying, I'll reflect on this next Sunday. This week as I was studying, I went back and reread some of the prayers that I had for us as we began this journey together through what is really a fairly complicated, um, difficult letter in the New Testament. And I believe with all of my heart, as I went back and reread those prayers and just anticipating what God might do in and through his word over these last number of months, I believe he has done that. I believe, I believe that God has faithfully used his word among his people to bring forth his will and his purpose. And for that, I'm glad. And now we have two more weeks. If we can, if we can get this in two weeks, my goal is to get in two weeks because Dr. Vickers will be preaching in three weeks. And uh, I want to wrap all of this up before he gets here, if we can. Our text this morning is a little different. I kind of messed this up last Sunday with the installation of our new elders and deacons. So to just give you a little bit of background to why we are where we are this morning. Last Sunday, I covered verse number 7 and verse number 17. So I grabbed those two verses and ripped them out of these paragraphs that are before us. And as I said last Sunday, as I began those sermons, that sermon, I used those verses a little differently maybe than the author was intending. His focus was on the congregation, and I kind of turned them a little bit to focus on calling our leaders, our elders, and our deacons to faithful ministry here at Randolph Street to make sure that we are reminded of the task that is before us, to make sure we understand the accountability that is pressed over our lives as men who seek to shepherd and to care for this flock that is before us. So all that to say this, I kind of ruined verse 7 and 17, okay? You can go back and get those maybe a little bit better in your own time. And if you're in our ladies' Bible study, you'll probably pick those up better. Today, we're going to move on to verse number 8. And I'm only going to get through verse number 14 because I want to kind of see these concluding exhortations and why this author finds it important to come back and rehearse some truths and to put some statements kind of right in front of us. And I believe this text, especially verse number 12 and 13 and 14, this text is some of the most pointed exhortation that we will find throughout the entirety of the book of Hebrews. It's kind of an apex call, if you will. This author He has not played any games from chapter 1 all the way through the end of this. He has been sober. He has been serious. He has been calling the people of God to faithfulness. Let us hold fast our confession. And now at the end of this lengthy exhortation, he's going to have a set down moment with us. And it's going to get very serious. As this author apexes his exhortations, With the call of verse number 13, therefore let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Here's your outline if you're taking notes to work through this to get us to the table. Next Sunday, no table. It's probably pack your lunch kind of Sunday. It's going to be a lengthy sermon. That's probably never a good promo for for good attendance. All right, it's going to be a really short sermon next Sunday, 15 minutes, all right? A couple of 15-minuteers. Here's your outline. Three sides of this little text. It feels disconnected, but I'm going to try to draw it together. Verse 8 maybe feels like the most disconnected verse of this entire letter, but it's not. He's going to give us a clear-minded robust theology of Christ. Verse 8, so quick, it's so short, but it is a robust theology of Christ, of Jesus. Two, we're going to look at this exhortation he gives us in verse number 9, to have our hearts strengthened by grace. I'm going to jump into that and see what he means by that. He's going to bring back some of the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament There's going to be some rebukes in here, but I want to kind of camp there for a second. What does he mean when he talks about having our hearts strengthened by grace? Really important in light of the overall argument of this book. 
Lastly, verses 12 through 14, we're going to look at that pointed call. It is all Christ or it is nothing. There is no room in the mind of this writer for half-hearted Christianity. It is all in following Jesus knowing that our kingdom is not of this world, which is what these tables are going to preach to us in a moment. Our kingdom is not of this world. All in, full allegiance, or out. That's the feel of this. All right, so let's jump in. Verse number eight. Feels disconnected. Let me go back and catch verse seven from last week. Remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. This whole book, this writer has been developing a theology of Christ. From chapter 1, I'm going to refer back to that in just a moment. From chapter 1, verse number 1, this author has been unfolding for us as Christians this robust theology of Jesus. And he's not, he's not finished by any stretch as he finished here. He's going to come to this very familiar text in verse number 8 that feels disconnected. Jesus Christ, he just kind of jumps in with it, if you will. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right in the middle of all these exhortations. If you've been with us the last few weeks, and you've been following through these sermons, you may come to this verse and think, it just feels a little forced, if you will. Which is okay if it is. It may feel a little forced, like he's dropping in things just randomly. It's like he's coming to the end of this letter and as he's pinning these thoughts, he gets to the end and he's like, oh man, I got all these things to say, but I've got to wrap this up. And as I'm wrapping this up, hey, just remember this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It may feel that way, but it's not. I think there's two reasons this little verse is here. One, it follows up verse 7 nicely. If you remember last week, we talked about verse number 7. The idea there of remembering your leaders. This author is probably calling to mind previous leaders that they have had who have probably finished their race. Their course has been run. Godly men who had stepped into this local church, this flock purchased by Christ. And served her so faithfully and so well. Those who spoke the word of God to them. Those who had a way of life that this author says, hey, I want you to imitate their faith. And they have passed. They are gone. Behind that, as they reflect upon and remember these leaders that they so deeply loved. This author comes behind that and he says, not Christ. Their memories go on. These leaders have passed, but Christ has not passed. This is the one who is the same today, same yesterday, and the same forever. One commentator says this to kind of get us running. He says, this Christological confession, which is what this is, in one little short verse, this high Christology, would remind these readers that the same Christ who was real to them in the beginning, when their former leaders were with them, is seated now in the heavens, and he rules continuously. Their circumstances and perspective may have changed, but Jesus Christ and his gospel do not. Christ's help, his grace, and his power are permanently at their their disposal. He never needs to be replaced. Nothing can be added to his perfect work. So this, this, read, this, this writer is reminding them, hey, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. These faithful individuals that God raised up to serve you and to care for you. Remember them. They have passed. Oh, but not Christ. Not Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the constant among you. Circumstances may have changed. Tribulations and trials may have entered and passed. These leaders have stepped in and they have now gone, but not Christ. This is a theology of Jesus. This author is going to unpack to remind these readers of the stability they have in this person named Jesus. So I think it's the first reason. There may be a little emotional connection here. 
I mean, I don't know the names of these leaders, but yeah, I remember John. He was a good leader. He was faithful. Oh, he spoke the word of God to us. I miss John. And his writer comes right behind that and says, Christ, he's the same. Yesterday, today, forever. He has not passed on. He's not going to pass on. He is the constant. He is your complete stability of faith. That's the first reason I think he's doing here. The second reason is this. This is the central theology of this entire book. Christ. And this, this, this writer is going to warn these readers about strange theology, diverse theology, false teaching that is going to affect the church. And he wants to begin this section by reminding these readers of this theology of Jesus. Right? We're going to look at this in a moment. There's going to be all kinds of false teaching enter in. They're going to hit the church and going to hit them hard. We looked at that last Sunday and the importance of having leaders who will stand up to the wolves who are going to attack the church. But in the midst of all this, he brings forth this Christological confession, if you will, to remind them and in the midst of all the, the attacks that will come up on the church, this is your central confession, Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. This is a thread he's laced throughout this entire book. Let me go back. Don't turn. Just this constancy of Christ, the eternality of Christ, the stability of Christ. Listen to what he says in chapter 1. This is going back to August 2018. But of the Son, he says, this is an incredible picture, the Father speaking about the Son. And of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And the Father has said of the Son, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will all be changed. But you are the same. You hear this? This is what the Father is saying about the Son at the very beginning of this letter. You are the same, and your years will have no end. Yes, your leaders have passed. Yes, circumstances have changed. What remains the same? The eternal Son of God. He is your anchor. You hear that? You feel that? What he says in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 is what he began in chapter 1 with. He continues in a variety of texts. Like this one, chapter 5. You remember this one. This whole argument he's going to make in 5 and 6 and 7 about the priesthood of Christ. And he's going to compare him, if you remember, that very confusing passage to Melchizedek. This priest who kind of walks onto the pages of the Old Testament. We don't know where he comes from. And then as quickly as he walks onto the pages, he's gone. And we don't really know where he goes. And the writer picks up on that. And he says this. You, this is what the, the, the father says to the son. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. So the idea here is all these priests in the Old Testament, they, they come onto the scene to serve the people of God. As sure as they come onto the scene, one of the inherent realities of the Old Testament priesthood is what? They die. They pass off the scene. But here's this priest that the writer of Hebrews is going to draw our attention to. This priest who is going to walk onto the pages of history who has no beginning. And after this order of Melchizedek, he is a priest forever. His ministry has no end. This is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or chapter 9, speaking of Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and of goats and calves. You remember that whole scene, the priest, they had to sacrifice for their own sins. 
before they would ever enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. This, this once a year moment, they would have to see cleansing of their own sins. And the writer of Hebrews is going to make it clear that this priest, Jesus, he had no sin. He says that in chapter 4. He says that in chapter 7. This high priest enters in. He doesn't need a sacrifice for his own sins. He enters in not by the blood of goats and calves, but he enters in by the means of his own blood. Unlike any priest who came before him, this priest enters in not by the blood of another, but by his own blood that this writer is going to say is the blood of the eternal covenant. He enters in into the presence of God on behalf of sinners. And then it says this about this high priest. He secures thus, because he entered in by his own blood, this pure, undefiled blood, he secures thus for us an eternal redemption. So not only is this person eternal, but what he brings forth for his people is eternal. It's not temporal. It's not passing. This treasure we have in Christ is constant and it is abiding and it is forever. This is why he's putting forth this, if you will, this little succinct, compact theology of Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the midst of all your changes in your life and trials and struggles, there is Christ. And he remains. He remains. F.F. Bruce, if you're looking for a good little commentary that is scholarly yet readable, F.F. Bruce is a, is a good option. Listen to what he says about this. He's saying some of the things I just said, but he's taking a little different trail. I thought it'd be helpful to read this. He says, picks up on these words. He says, Yesterday Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death. Chapter 5, verse 7. Today, he represents his people in the presence of God, a high priest who is able to sympathize with them in their weaknesses because, chapter 4, verse 15, he was in all points tempted like we, yet without sin. And, Bruce writes, forever he lives, this same Jesus, chapter 7, verse 5, 25, to make intercession for them. His help, his grace, his power, his guidance are permanently at his people's disposal. Why then? And here's the connection to what we're going into. Why then should they lose heart? You hear that? Your leaders have passed. But he wants to bring you back to this core theology of Christ. He has not passed. His work in the past, his work in the presence, present, his, his work in the future, it is constant, it is stable, it is forever, it is sure, it is the anchor of your soul, this Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. That leads us to verse number nine. He's going to warn them here as he's pushing toward this idea of having hearts that are strengthened by grace. Look at what he says in verse number nine. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. In some ways, you could just simply say this. Anything that's contrary to verse number 8, don't be led away by that. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And now he's going to get into what he's talking about. It gets a little confusing. Not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. And then he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So I think what's happening here in this text, for these readers, and you remember going way back, many of these readers are Jewish Christians. And they were facing the constant pull of the Jewish ceremonial law and the danger of being pulled away from Christ back into the old covenant, if you will. I mean, it's kind of the basis of the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. Here in this text, he's going to address two particular issues, foods and, sacrificial, and the sacrificial system. Now, before I get into food and sacrificial systems, 
let us recognize that the danger that exists for these first, first century Christians is the same danger that exists for us, maybe even more so, to be led away by false teaching. One theme you find in the New Testament everywhere is this constant warning about false teachers entering in and robbing you of your right thinking about God and his word. None of us are above it. And in our social media day, maybe we're more exposed to false teaching than ever before. So we should hear these warnings and understand this is, this is personal for us. This, if you are in Hebrews and you say, this can't be me, you're not reading Hebrews correctly. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, beware of false prophets. And listen to how he says they're coming to you. You know this text. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he's calling us to be alert, to be aware as Christians. It comes in all forms here, as Jesus says, false teachers are going to come. There's certainty in his mind, and they're going to come as not saying, I'm a false teacher. They're going to come dressed in sheep's clothing. You remember last Sunday when we were talking about elders and deacons and the importance of leaders in the context of a local church, and especially in Acts chapter 20, as Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. He said to them kind of very similar language that Jesus just said in Matthew chapter 7. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. There was no doubt in Paul's mind. They're coming. Or texts like 1 Timothy chapter 4. When Paul writes, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And you can find this everywhere in the New Testament. Every major writer of the New Testament is going to warn us, beware, false teachers are coming. False doctrine is going to seek to penetrate your heart and your mind. And here in this particular text, it is no different. There are strange and diverse teachings that this writer is going to warn us about. We must protect ourselves. Don't answer this out loud. How do you protect yourself against false teachers? Don't answer that out loud. Well, it's not by turning on TBN, I promise you that, okay? It's by letting your heart and your mind on a daily basis be shaped by God's word. That is defense number one. On a daily basis, letting my heart and my mind be shaped by God's word because God's word shows me how God sees the world and how God sees me. I need God's mind and it is in the word of God where that is formed and that is shaped. Now this particular problem, if you look down at your text, in verses 9 and 10 especially, deal with the old covenant and this author has repeatedly address this issue. He speaks of food in verse number nine. This is probably a reference to claims being made by non-believing Jews that the dietary laws of the old covenant are crucial to one's walk with God. In other words, those unbelieving Jews were going after those believing Jews and saying, hey, unless you submit yourself to these old covenant dietary regulations, there is no fellowship with God. And the writer is rather clear here. If you look down at your text, this devotion, this practice has not benefited those devoted to them. You see that? It's not benefited them. You can only imagine the pressure on early Jewish Christians that if they did not participate in these ceremonial practices, then they would be cut off from God. And this author is saying, no, don't go back to the old covenant. It's the same argument he's made over and over and over again. In verse 10, he turns his attention to the sacrificial system when he says this, 
We have an altar from those from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What a bold statement. We have an altar. What is the altar here he's referring to? I think the altar here he's referring to is Christ and him crucified. That is our altar. Now some piece of wood that you often find decorating contemporary churches. Our altar is singular. And our altar is Christ and him crucified. Period. There is no other altar to be found. It is there we meet God. As one author notes, the point here is this. The author is saying that as long as these Jews brought their sacrifices to the temple, they were missing God's true altar, namely his son who gave himself as the complete and final sacrifice for our sins. In other words, to continue in these ceremonial practices, we're missing the whole point. All of the old covenant and these ceremonies and these rituals, they were but shadows pointing to Christ. And Christ has come. And in Christ... The old covenant finds its end and its fulfillment. Notice his strong language there. Those who serve the tent have no right to eat. I think what he's saying here is because of their unbelief, they continue in this. They have rejected Christ. They continue in these ceremonial practices, these dietary regulations, these sacrificial systems prescribed under the old covenant, they continue in these ways. And this author says, hey, they have no right to approach our altar because they have a heart of unbelief. Our altar is Christ and him crucified. They have missed it. They have missed that these practices were designed by God to drive them to Christ. The Old Testament and the ceremonial aspects of the law were designed not as an end unto themselves. They were designed to teach the observer their need for forgiveness, their need for a substitute. They were designed by God to ultimately drive the observer to the Son of God. And the challenge and the pull in this early church was so hard. Jewish believers who have embraced Christ and Jewish unbelievers saying, no, you've got to come back. And the pull was strong. strong. And this author saying, hey, don't be led away by this. Don't be led away by this. Now look at what he says in this verse. And this is the point of, of this whole section I'm dealing with. He wants their heart strengthened by grace. You see that in verse number nine? Don't be led away by strange teaching. I want your heart strengthened by grace. The heart is fickle. He warned them back in chapter 3, verse number 8, do not harden your hearts. And now he concludes, almost, it's almost a bookend, if you will. He concludes, I want your hearts strengthened by grace. Don't harden your hearts. Get your hearts strengthened by grace. Not by outward ceremonies. Not by what you put in your body, this, this ceremonial foods, if you will. I want your heart strengthened by grace. If you remember the context of these readers quickly. Chapter 5, they've struggled in their growth. They were struggling in their maturation as Christians. Some of them were. Chapter 10, some of their friends were departing from the faith. Chapter 10, some of them had faced severe persecution. Were continuing to face that. Chapter 4, they were all facing temptations of life, just the struggle and the battle of sin. So every one of these readers were in the midst of a battle. They were in a fight, just like, just like every person in this room, if you're a Christian. This writer says, I want your heart strengthened by grace. What does he mean by this? Well, to have hearts strengthened by grace... I think it's simple, and I think it goes back to verse number eight, and I think it summarizes the whole book, if you will. 
This author wants your heart, your mind, set upon all that God has done for you in Christ. Your altar. He wants your heart set upon all that he has done for you in Christ. Let me, two verses come to mind, then I got a Jerry Bridges quote to work through with you. Chapter 2, verse number 9, we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Here it is, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's calling us back to this, this is the grace of God. Look at the grace of God. Jesus has come, he's enrobed himself in flesh. He has walked in this earth, he's been faithful. He has tasted death for you by the grace of God. Chapter 4, verse number 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help, find grace to help in time of need. This throne of grace idea, two texts that come to mind. This author wants your heart to be strengthened by grace. He wants you to be set upon all that God has done for you in Christ. Jerry Bridges, if you've never read a work by Jerry Bridges, let me encourage you to that end. He kind of coined the phrase, though I think he ripped this from church history. We've all ripped everything we say, right, more or less. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, which is, I think is what he's saying here. Have hearts strengthened by grace. You're busy. Your life is full. You've got a thousand things going on. This author saying, hey, stop. Stop and settle your heart on all that God has done for you in Christ and bathe yourself there. Be strengthened by this. Listen to Jerry Bridges. This is an extended quote, so stick with me. This is from his book, Respectable Sins, which is a tremendous read. He writes about this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself daily. Since the gospel is only for sinners, I begin each day with the realization that despite my being a saint, I still sin every day in thought, word, deed, and motive. If I'm aware of any subtle or not so subtle sins in my life, I acknowledge those to God. Even if my conscience is not indicating, indicting me for conscious sins, I still acknowledge to God that I have not even come close to loving him with all my being or loving my neighbor as myself. I repent of those sins. And then I apply specific scriptures that assure me of God's forgiveness to those sins that I've just confessed. And here it goes. I then generalize the scripture's promises of God's forgiveness to all of my life and say to, and say to God words to the, to the effect that my only hope of a right standing with him that day is Jesus' shed blood for my sins and his righteous life he lived on my behalf. This reliance on the twofold work of Christ for me is beautifully captured by Edward Mote. In his hymn, The Solid Rock. His words, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So Bridges says, almost every day, I find myself going to those words in addition to reflecting on the promises of God and his forgiveness he has granted me in the scriptures. So what scriptures do I use to preach the gospel to myself every day? Here they are. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans chapter 4, you hear this? He's just rehearsing. This is what it is to have your heart strengthened by grace. It is stepping back and saying, I'm going to behold all that God has done for me in Christ. You have a thousand things competing for your attention every day. And this author and Bridges, they're saying, hey, no, strengthen your heart by grace. Set your mind there. Bridges continues. Romans 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, there are many others 
I could throw out Psalm 130, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 38, Micah 7, Ephesians 1, Colossians 2, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9. And it just goes on and on and on and on. The hymn book is large for us to sing the gospel to our souls every day. And then he says, Whatever scriptures we use to assure us of God's forgiveness, we must realize that whether the passage explicitly states it or not, the only basis for God's forgiveness is the blood, shed blood of Christ on the cross for us. Hebrews makes it clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the context makes it clear that Christ's blood provides the objective basis on which God forgives me, the sinner. That was a long quote. It's just bridges coming beside of us and saying, listen, every day, this is, I think this is what the author is saying, strengthens your heart by grace. Every day, you need to consciously, every day, Christian, you need to, with clear mind, set before your God and set your heart upon all that he has done for you in Christ. And just boast in it, rest in it. Know these texts that Bridges sets out before us. Know your scriptures so that you can be a man or a woman who daily, if not, other teachings are going to try to rob you of your faith. It's an intentional effort every day. Set my heart on what God has done for me in Christ. Have hearts strengthened by grace, not by external ceremonial things, but by God and what he has done for me in Christ. Last point of the morning. He's going to transition in verse number 11, and we're pressed now, so let's, let's race a little quicker. Transitions as he's going to call us to maybe the most pointed call of the entire book of Hebrews. He says in verse number 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's taking us back to Leviticus, if I remember right, it's chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. This unique time when the body of the sacrificed animals would not be eaten by the priest, but instead they were taken outside the camp and they were burned. They were cursed of God. He uses that little text, that little idea to move us to verse number 12 when he says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, sanctify the people through his own blood. He simply calls us to mind Jesus likewise was taken outside the city. I don't need to go back and rehearse the history of the crucifixion of Christ. He was taken outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And in that he fulfills this old covenant ritual. Himself being taken outside the city. Himself being accursed of God. Himself being forsaken, condemned, and abandoned. He did this so that he might sanctify his people through his own blood. That which the old covenant could never produce, Christ brought to pass. Now his point, verse number 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach, the reproach he endured. I think this is the climax of the exhortation in Hebrews. It is this culminating call to the reader. You are all in or you are out. You either go outside the camp. Now for these Jewish readers, this was personal. Those who have come to faith in Christ, who embrace the teachings of the old covenant and they embrace the fulfillment of the old covenant in Christ. This is an all-in call from this reader. You either go outside the camp to your forsaken Savior or you have no Savior. And notice what he writes in this. We go out and we bear the reproach that he endured. What a call to the gospel. My guess is if American churches would start calling people to Christ like this, 
we may have fewer false conversions. Go outside the camp. Embrace this suffering. Abandon Christ. Gladly bear the reproach that he endured. That's the call to follow Christ. Said this of Moses back in chapter 11. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. You hear that? He considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures of the most powerful kingdom of the world. I mean, it's like Moses weighs it in the moment. The reproach of Christ. All the treasures of the most powerful kingdom in the world. I'll take Christ. This, this is simply what Jesus has said to us throughout the New Testament. Let us go outside the camp. There is no half-hearted Christians. You're all in or you're all out. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. He writes, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That is brutal language. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Parents, teach your children to love Christ more than they love you. Or your children are not worthy of Christ. It is blatant language. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Go outside the camp and gladly bear the reproach of Christ that he endured. What a call. It would be wrong of me not to stop as a pastor to ask you, is this your heart? Is this, is this where you find yourself? Is this the kind of mentality you have? It's Christ. My life is Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm going to live this life for the glory and the purposes of Christ. I'm going to go outside of the city. I'm going to leave my life and I'm going to abandon my life to Christ. That's the call of this text. That's the call of the entire book of Hebrews. And, and the message of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better and Jesus is worth it. To lay down your life for his cause and for his purposes. Notice what he says here at the end of this text. For we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. To carry forth the imagery. The sacrificed animals were discarded outside of the city. Taken outside of the city of Jerusalem. And now you likewise are called to go out of that city. And the recognition is this. We have no lasting city here. We have no lasting city here. But there is a city that is to come. There is a city that is to come. And this author, before he finishes this book, he's not going to leave without reminding you of that one more time. Go outside the city. Gladly bear the reproach of Christ. Because you have a city that is coming, that is an unshakable kingdom. It is the Mount Zion of chapter 12, that which is eternal. It is a city that is going to bear its fruit up on your lives. It is a city that is to come whose foundation will be forever, whose maker is God. So go, Christians. Live your life for Christ. Here we have no city, but there is a city that is to come. These tables that are before me, preach this text a lot better than I preach it. These tables that are before me call you as Christians to have your hearts strengthened by setting your minds up on all that God has done for you in Christ. That's what these tables do. These tables are the best preachers we have in this church. Look at what Christ has done. Have your heart strengthened. But these tables do more than that also. They, they not only call us back 
to reflect upon all that God has done for us in Christ, but they're likewise a call forward as they remind us when Jesus, I'm going to read this text in a moment, when Jesus will say, I will not partake of the fruit of this vine until I celebrate with you in the kingdom. These tables are calling us forward and reminding us we have a city. This, this life will pass, this kingdoms will pass, but there is an unshakable kingdom that God will bring forth because of all that his son has accomplished. You rest there and let your heart be strengthened by grace. Amen? Let us pray together. Father, as we enter into this most holy time, the purest of moments when the gospel will be proclaimed in the very manner of which Christ ordained through this bread and this cup. I pray for every Christian in this room that in these moments we would set our hearts upon all that you have done for us in Christ and thereby have hearts strengthened by grace. Oh, it's like fuel. As we set our thoughts upon this suffering, victorious Christ for us, condemned and forsaken. Oh God, press into our hearts and minds even now truths like justification and reconciliation, propitiation. Let those biblical words rise up in our hearts and let us rejoice. Father, we merit nothing here. These are tables of grace. We have merited no righteousness, no right standing, It is by the work of your son alone that we have the privilege of entering into your presence. So let us be mindful of that now. Bless your people. Strengthen our hearts as we set our minds upon all that you, our glorious and gracious God, have done for us through your son. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.